This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. episode of Art of Darkness. This is a very special dark room episode for folks who've been following along with us. You know that what that means is we've already done a uh, carefully prepared deep dive into uh, a subject, in this case, William Faulkner. And we're coming back with somebody who knows a bit more about the subject than we do. Um to, to <laughs> wait, wait, oh, yeah, a, a wee lot bit more, more. <laughs> a little <laughs> tiny bit more. Actually, it's like, funny. It's funny yeah. we do mm. these things so fast and furious. I was listening back to the Faulkner episode, and it's literally with, me with the great it. with the great Aaron, Aaron Gwynn. Gwynn. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm listening back to it, and it's literally me saying it, and I'm like, oh, that was it. That's interesting. Like I totally don't remember it. So uh, <laughs> same. Yeah, we've yeah. already met the Colonel. I love the the story yeah. of the 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 man who tries to assassinate or to murder yes. the the Colonel, and the gun doesn't fire two times, and then the Colonel. Yeah stabs him right and oh, uh, that, yeah. that was Faulkner's great-grandfather and again I like the idea of literary gremlins being in that gun yeah, because we yeah. had to we had to get uh William Faulkner so yeah yes, anyway indeed. go on Brad yeah so we um we have with us today um the great Bernard Joy who is a uh who's earned his PhD in uh last year December of 2021 writing about Faulkner uh he's an educator writer researcher living in in Scotland um he's taught uh, since 2012, um, held holding teaching positions at a bunch of institutions, uh, including University of Glasgow. Uh, his publications include two books of poetry and one solo collection of prose, which I'm going to ask about because that's very curious. And uh, and Kevin and I are both both writers, so we always want to know what people are up to. Um, and uh, has a bunch of stuff coming out uh, in tw- this year and next. Uh, most notably for us. Uh, it's got some work uh, scheduled to be published in the Faulkner Journal, um, uh, a piece actually I think we're going to talk about a little bit, um, and uh, and a chapter in, uh, I, I, I'm struggling, I saw the county name on there, the, yeah, and, and had like a Is little, Wakna <laughs> Pathak, say it again, say, sorry, Yoke. say that one more time, Yokna Patofa. Oh, great. Yes, lovely. Yes. <laughs> Got it. I, I, I will say I need to say I need to say a little bit slower than other people. Sure, sure. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> yeah, you got it. We had Gwyn on and he said it like it was a normal word. It just rolled out. I was like, what? like, I think it's like uh, the, the, because uh, I know, I know Aaron, uh, he's, he's obviously got the American uh, drawl uh, going. Yeah. So he can, he can do that uh, like a little bit more easily than myself, but uh, sure. I, I can pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tricky one. So, um, so yeah. So, uh, I guess we'll kind of get into it. I, I'm, I want to, um, ask you, 
this kind of is kind of my favorite question to ask when we do these episodes is sort of where does your Faulkner journey start? Like, when did you come across him? And and maybe also, how did you know, like, this is the thing I want to focus? You wrote your thesis on Faulkner. That's a lot of time. Um, how would you know that, like, okay, I'm going to spend the next several years, however long it took you, going into this? We studied him for a month. That's the, the limit of my attention span, pretty much. Uh, what is Who is Faulkner to you? Well, you know, I respond very much to, like, serendipity in life. And, uh, like, uh, for me, I stumbled across him, really. I was teaching high school in Aberdeen here in Scotland. And, uh, you know, I was on sort of an off period, not very much to do. I wandered into the book book closet there and I found a dusty old copy of uh, The Sound and the Fury. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'd never read uh, at that point The Sound and the Fury. I think I'd, I'd, I'd read some Faulkner in the dim and distant past, but I didn't really have uh, particularly that much of a connection to him as a as an author at that point, uh, but that I, t- I took that uh, that uh, copy of the Sound and the Fury, read it, and it just sort of fell in love with the the, the way he's able to uh, uh, the way he's able to take um, so many different perspectives, and I think that's something that I w- we'll be talking about today. You know, uh, he's he's able to come at uh, the same story from four different angles. He does that in The Sound and the Fury. He can do it from 16 different angles like he does in As I Lay Dying. Um, and that kind of uh, ability is just uh, ju- just amazing to me that he's able that he's able to do that. And and also that he, and also as I've learned, as I've uh, continued on my journey uh, studying Faulkner, it's, it's not that just that he's able to do it, but that it's something that he's invested in doing in the first place. Because it is well, it's so so much part of his what we might call his modernism. Although mm-hmm. <laughs> some scholars these days are are shying away from that term, but mm-hmm. it's it's such uh, it's such a part of that for me that he's able to come at things from multiple multiple perspectives, and then the perspectives he chooses as well. Mm-hmm. He he chooses the perspective of a thirty three year old man with the the mental acumen of a, of a three-year-old, mm-hmm. which is how it's to, how he he discusses that character when he talks about Benji Compson. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that he would he would choose that I take to be an extremely egalitarian thing to do as a writer to actually go into that world. Um, and to lesser extents he does it as well with the other characters in the novel. So he does it in a sense with Quentin Compson as well. Right. Uh, right. Quentin being you know, the most pathetic specimen <laughs> of manhood that you can imagine. Um, right. Just, you know, when he gets into a physical fight, he faints, uh, things like this. And he's, and Faulkner is really, you know, speaking, and, and he does this, I think, throughout his fiction. He speaks for people who really are not able to speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um and he does. I think like he he does that, but he develops that as he goes on. So uh, as we'll get, uh, maybe we'll circle back to it later. Uh, just the, the I know we'll probably end up talking about uh, the racial aspect in Faulkner's work, but that's something he also does. But perhaps it takes him longer to get there. Sure. To be able to talk about racial minorities. 
Yeah. Well, and this um, immediately reminds me of the thing I think we're going to talk about on the After Dark, Brad, for mm-hmm. Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. We always do an extra 20 or 30 minutes after every episode, and this episode is no exception. What are we going to talk about on the After Dark, Brad? Yeah, we're going to talk about the question, was Faulkner a cubist, a, <laughs> See, a literary that... <laughs> cubist, um, and a capital C, so... Uh, that yeah. is, yeah, you've got my attention. My <laughs> my ears have perked up. Um, yeah. Bernard is so this this immediately strikes me as Faulkner as almost kind of an arch American figure. It's such an American this this subjectivity and being able to pull from different you know uh, have different narrative voices. I, I mean, I I don't I, I assume that's not uniquely American, but it does feel to me to be um, true to to at least um, my understanding of American letters um, and his place in it, um, that ability to see from different, different um, perspectives. I think it certainly is uh, like the, where I come from with the question you've just uh, asked or the, or, or the suggestion you've just made as I, I come from the point of view of American, American literature being something that really had to be made up in a, a sort of uh, ad hoc fashion almost when it begins, uh, because, uh, you know, you see with the early American uh, fiction writers, you know, if you go, you go back to the, the Emersons and, 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 and so on, you are actually seeing a, a, a group of writers who are having to invent their own way of being, uh, of being American novelists or American poets or American whatever. Um, and that's something that actually, very interestingly, that, that bleeds into Faulkner's own time. Uh, there's mm-hmm. still not really a genuine American voice. Um, uh, perhaps it's America, it's uh, Faulkner's generation that really are able to pull that off for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, for an example of that, uh, uh, Faulkner himself spoke about uh, Edgar Allan Poe, and he said Edgar Allan Poe isn't an American; he's a he's a European. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you, and he would, you know, that, that same argument can be made for people like Emerson or Thoreau, others. Certainly uh, Hawthorne, going back to Hawthorne. Hawthorne yeah. yeah, Hawthorne's a good example. Melville, you know, mm. the, the, these people are um, drawing so much on uh, the debt to European letters that they struggle to find uh, an, an American voice in which to write. So I think. That that's that speaks uh, to what Kevin's saying because um, Faulkner is still uh, making this attempt. Can we come at can we come at things from our own perspective? Mm. Can we come at, uh, at things from an American perspective? Yeah, and can we break away from the debts to to other literatures? And I think if you start there, you you do start to think, okay, but what are the, all the other perspectives? Then right. Yeah, the, mel- mm-hmm. the sort of melting pot of America, right? As as easy yeah. as that is to to say now, and 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 having to- I call it I call it a salad shooter now. <laughs> it's the it's the, uh, the grinder, the coffee grinder. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah so to. Yeah, to actually get to an American letters, you've got to you got to incorporate that aspect of what American culture is. You've got to incorporate the sort of propositional nature of America historically. Uh, you've got to you've also got to start to criticize it in some ways that maybe wouldn't have landed 
as well back in Hawthorne's day, right? Back when, you know, maybe the perspective, there was maybe a, an agreement that we're going to be optimistic about this whole project. Whereas you get to Faulkner and it's like, well, some of it's pretty great, but... <laughs> we haven't yet mentioned Whitman, though. Do we That's think true. Whitman was the sort of the outlier, the poetic outlier? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I would I would add Whitman into the to the list. I think he's he's in mm. there as well. I mean, he's he's doing so much that's that's very radical for his time, you know. Um, and you you know, it, it's, it, Americans certainly never invented uh, uh, um, same sex attraction, but it's, he certainly he certainly finds a new way of uh, of thinking about that. <laughs> We're um, always yeah. innovating. Right, <laughs> not quite that innovative. Certainly, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Whitman is doing that in a, in a new and inventive way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, sir, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the American Blake, right? Just a man out of time in a way, and we were all kind of caught up with him eventually. I mean, this brings up an interesting question, and and um, uh, maybe this is just my as I was doing the research for the bi biographical material. I was um, pleasantly surprised by all of the places around the world where Faulkner ended up being celebrated, because to me, he feels so American that when I read that the Japanese, for instance, were in love with him, I was like, I, that just piqued my curiosity. And so it makes me wonder, what is Faulkner's standing sort of where you're at geographically? Does, does he mean yeah. anything to people now? I mean, I don't know if he means much to most the average American now. I think he's just sort of a name. Uh, but what, what does he mean to, to folks in Scotland, if anything? Well, I mean, it's an ex extremely interesting question to look at how how he's how, how uh, Faulkner translates into other places because because really, actually, that that question goes to the heart of understanding who Faulkner is in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, Faulkner doesn't really achieve. Uh, the popularity that he will achieve, the sort of uh, the, the can being being a, a suitable candidate candidate for the Nobel and things like that, until he's translated into French, mm. it's really the French that first uh, sort of put him on the map in a sense, and 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 only later does he take off in American letters. He's right. sort of struggling <laughs> struggling in America uh, when he w before that period in which he's translated into French. So I think from the the very beginning, he's uh, he's what we might call an international international writer in a yeah. sense. Yeah, there's a notion of sort of uh, you know the prophet is never welcome at home kind of thing, right? Is never is never is never heralded in his own hometown. They did eventually accept him down in Oxford, but sort of by the force of his his pre his international presence, you know, it yeah. was sort of like once yeah. cameras started showing up, they were like, well, who's it? Wait, who's this that that weirdo that lives over there? He's he's. And then I mean. <laughs> yeah. and that you say weirdo is a very is a very, that's a very good term to use because you know Faulkner himself towards you know when he attains the Nobel and he's got all this these fancy accolades he he's living in Roanoke and he he says uh, I don't like people coming to interview me because they they come with this I'm paraphrasing but he says they come with the supposition that I'm going to have two heads right you know this <laughs> idea that he's uh, he's completely um He's 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 a he's a celebrity, and you know it's this. Uh, he he doesn't like this attitude. He he, he likes more. Um, well, you know, there's a lot of myth that he's trying to propagate about himself being a an an ordinary man right. and all the rest of it, which is kind of false too. 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's what's funny too. I noticed in the research mm. is like early on he was lying about being a soldier, a World War One veteran, sort of a veteran, right? Of of real respectability, and he lied to get into that. He pretended he was English to get into that, and then when he kind of came home, he sort of presented himself as being um, perhaps more sophisticated than he actually was. And then yeah, later he's like lying about being more ordinary than he. He's trying to is. thread the thread the needle. I mean, yeah. how many? How many uh, famous podcast presenters or whatever else it is yeah. tried out? This is an American style to be yeah. the everyman. And you're like, I know you live in an $8 million <laughs> mansion, bro. Right, right, right. <laughs> I, well, okay. yeah, I mean, we don't, we won't elect people as presidents unless they like go shoot a turkey or something, right? Like they've got to do this like ritual <laughs> right. thing or they go clear brush or whatever. Yeah. So, hey, yeah. folks. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to talk, I, I want to get into a little bit of your of your thesis. Uh, I, I didn't read it. Obviously, I saw it on Twitter. Uh, and I the name the the title piqued my interest, the lost forest, William Faulkner's old verities. And of course, old verities, I believe you're taking that from his uh, famous Nobel Prize acceptance speech in which he talks about how we must writers must learn again the old verities of uh, oh I think I have them here yeah love and honor and pity and pride and compassion and sacrifice right um, uh, can you tell us what can you tell us about your thesis what's what's the what are the directions that you're taking taking this research in it well uh, you know it, it begins with um, taking what Faulkner says at his Nobel ad address, and he he doesn't only say it at his Nobel, he says it at uh, various t various public uh, addresses at various times. One of the other famous ones is the the University of Virginia, where he taught for a period of time. He 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 says it several times, brings it brings things back. Faulkner is very repetitive in his public addresses. He'll he'll mm -hmm. recycle the same ideas, but um, he says this this idea of the, the, the verities of the human heart, the old verities. And I find that like, um, and most when mostly when Faulkner scholars get together uh, and w we talk about um, uh, that concept, old verities, mostly it's rejected as uh, this is just a throwaway line for Faulkner. It doesn't really mean anything. It's not particularly important. Um, but what, I'm what I was doing with my thesis uh, and uh, I'm uh, still developing the work is um, to actually take that that proposition seriously. Um, did he uh, consider something he's calling old verities to be very central to his project? And I believe it does. I mean, if you you, you can go back as far as you want to go in the the fiction, if you want, you can go back further to to letters, things like this. But as far back as you want to go in the fiction, there's a sense of him groping for um, what. What I what I conceive of that these old verities are are uh, something universal that links us together. Mm. Uh, something something that's humanist, um, but I, I have to spill a lot of ink over the the term humanist because it is a, a quite <laughs> a degraded term now and and rightfully so quite a degraded term. Yeah. Um, but we need to say it's a it's a different kind of humanism. It's a it's a human humanism. Right. It's a humanism made for uh, you know made for the way the world actually is, and not uh, how some enlightenment uh, concept of of humanism, which actually excludes most human beings. Yeah, it's a humanism of a man who was willing to who believed you had to write at least you know sixteen perspectives to really say what happened. 
right? Yeah, I mean, it, it comes back to that that we were that we were speaking about. You know, I I, I believe that there is an eth- that there is an ethical um, if, if there's there's sort of an, an ethical system going on in Faulkner's work, and he is sticking to it now. Now he 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 monumentally fails uh, at, at several points uh, in the attempt to do that. Um, and I think that is, is where you look at wh- how do you look at him as an author? I mean, there are some people who are who who would be very willing to say, well, listen, Faulkner doesn't know anything about ethics or old verities or anything like this. Faulkner, you know, there are people who would say, you, we were speaking about the the uh, the article, uh, Faulkner's Demons, uh, Casey yep. Kept's article, and yeah. he's clear in that article, and 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 Michael Gora, who she draws on, is ve- is very clear too. That uh, Faulkner as a character uh, is sort of irredeemable, mm-hmm. and and that's that's something that people say now, and it needs to be taken seriously. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't come from the opposite angle. Uh, I come from an angle where I'm saying um, there are lots of things Faulkner did that were irredeemable. Yeah, but I do believe he's got an ethical scheme that he is aiming at, and I do think that sometimes he does make achievements in that. Uh, it's sort of a, I, I like to think it's a nuanced way of looking at it. Yeah. May I ask, what are some of the irredeemable things that, that Faulkner did? Do you mean in the letters or do you mean in his life or, or I both? That, yeah, I, I mean, got some it, of the, I, I got some of that New York, that New Yorker piece by Casey. Is it Casey Kep or Casey Sepp? I, I, I honestly don't know if it's Sepp or, or Kep. Yeah. Faulkner Kep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a couple of years ago, there was an article called uh, William Faulkner's Demons. It was in the New Yorker and it was basically about, it was if i wanted to boil it down to a sentence or two it was about william faulkner uh, william faulkner's racism essentially and um and there is a there is a suggestion that he was better in his fiction than in his life let me let me just read a little snippet of it so we kind of know what we're talking about Faulkner had grown up using racial slurs and deployed them in correspondence after he became well-known. He continued to write and say things that were just as scandalous, as, if not more so. In a letter to the editor of a newspaper in Memphis, he suggested that justice was delivered by juries and lynch mobs alike, and that no innocent man of any race had ever been lynched. In an article for Life magazine, he seemed to equate the NAACP with the White Supremacist uh, Citizens Council and opposed what he called the compulsory integration of the South by the North. Uh, He told the New York Herald Tribune that he longed for the return of the benevolent autocracy of slavery in which uh, Negroes would be better off because they'd have someone to look after them. In 1956, several years after he won the Nobel Prize, where he's talking about old verities, and around the time the federal government began deploying him as an international ambassador for democracy and human rights, he told a journalist that if the same government used troops to enforce integration in the South, he would do as his Confederate great-grandfather had done before him. Mm. so mm. yeah <laughs> uh but then again he's also the man who wrote intruder in the dust at the yeah, well this is what i this is the this is the sort of thin razor's edge that i try to walk uh between uh, a man who but you know it, like the 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 article the faultless demons article and you know and and really that article does uh sort of uh grab at the essence of what um, Michael Gora says in his much longer book. Uh, so th- they are they are thinking along the same lines there. Um, and, you know, w- w- when, they're, when they're talking, that doesn't defeat the, you know, to think of Faulkner's fiction as being uh, egalitarian and, and having its a- an ethical heart and things like that. 
uh, that doesn't defeat their point. I mean, because they 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 simply say, uh, you know, I think Casey Kep says something along the lines of um, uh, there's no redemption for Faulkner as a character, only for his characters. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Yeah. Mm. So we can take all his fiction, and it's a sort of strategy in a sense. It's a way so we we can still look at Faulkner's fiction, mm-hmm. and we can still you know look at that in a very ethical way. But we can't really look at biography and unless we're willing to say Faulkner's a write-off, <laughs> right? Yeah. As, and, and this is why he's. This is one of the reasons hey, we had him on. We and now, about and now program. you've discovered the thesis of the show. <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah. we don't state out loud. And okay, let's move on quickly. Brad. Yeah, yeah, right. quickly. <laughs> so right. So Faulkner, by the modern perspective, as a person, is in many ways irredeemable. And you know, it's not even just uh, things that he said or wrote. Um, the one thing we discovered when we were doing the, the original core episode on Faulkner is, I mean, he had um, he had servants, quote unquote, servants for a while who he didn't pay, who he simply provided room and board and medical expenses for. You just call them interns now that it, room and board and medical expenses. Right. <laughs> Faulkner right. the saint. That's, uh, yeah, that's pretty good in America at this point. But <laughs> but at the same time, it, it's hard to argue that that's that's fundamentally different than having a slave, right? Mm. Even if you mm. sl- treat a slave incredibly well, if they're still a slave, they're still a slave, right? So, uh, it, and yet, you know, it, just because he had fond, perhaps had fond feelings for these people, and even if they maybe had fond feelings for him, it doesn't. It, it he he still hasn't completely disentangled himself from as a person from you know from the traditions of 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 the of the South certain traditions of the South um, yeah and, so, the, and there's no you know there's the, there really is no uh, sense at all in coming in and, and and trying to defend any of those things uh, it's not, that's not the the no. the sort of um, the the argument against any of these things. Would not be that 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 Faulkner uh, was was you know didn't do any of these egregious things, extremely egregious things. Right. But the the argument would be that we we can't do this this sort of uh, firewall firewalling off his fiction from him. Uh, th- this to me doesn't work. I mean, it it does for others, but it doesn't work for me. I think what you've got to do. As you've got to go in, and you know there are other people doing this. I'm not out on a limb here. There are others doing this, where you you take uh, the entire body of the of work, mm-hmm. and you find in there things that are egregious as well. And you say, well, we don't actually. For instance, reading uh, Absalom, Absalom. When I first read Absalom, Absalom, I had to put the book down because that book has the most occurrences, and it's only in a short two chapters uh, space of the N-word. Right. Um, and, you know, if you're going to do Southern literature, you you sort of need to, uh, you know, you will encounter those wor- that word. Right? Yeah, you're going to have but, to desensitize yourself a little yeah, bit just to but, wade through it. Yeah. But, yeah. and I and I tend to think that's that's me. You know, I, I, I read it, uh, I know where it comes from, uh, I, I disapprove of it and I move on. Uh, but Absalom, Absalom, has it's all oh it's every it, it feels like it's every sentence 
Mm -hmm. This word's coming up. And personally, I felt the the rhythm of my heart change. (laughs) Really? Yeah, you you start to go, wait a minute, I'm I'm starting to get annoyed at you now because you keep you keep doing this. Right. Um and I actually had to when I first read it, I had to put the book down. And I love that book. Mm. You see, so this is my point. You've Mm. you must grapple with this. You love the book. You think it's got something in it that is ethical, mm-hmm. that's groping towards something that's ethical. But at moments in time, you can't even read it because it's so, it seems so racist. Right. <laughs> so right. It's like, it, there's, a, there's a big juggling act to be done. Yeah, and I think that's interesting. I mean, I think when there's a lot of conversations about when people say, oh, you know, we have to have the hard conversation about racism, I think, I think that is often kind of a throw off line. I think they're dealing with Absalom Absalom would be an example of having the difficult conversation, right? Of, <laughs> of, of, of racism, if we wanted to, you know, if we all sat aside and, and had to, had to, had to, had to wrestle with that book for a little bit, we might all learn, we might all learn something. And it wouldn't be that, Oh, we all need to think like Faulkner. It'd be a picture of a person, grappling with it themselves right through their art and life and and you know not necessarily winning or coming out shining um but 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 I mean, actually a, it really is it's a it's a it's an extremely hard discussion to have mm-hmm. but you know i i always follow i always fall on the side of uh, to, to you know go bravely into it mm-hmm. and uh, and have and, and attempt to have the discussion in its fullness i mean we talk about the we talk about the rust so you were speaking about the russell howe interview Mm-hmm. Uh, I always, so it was in 1956, two mm-hmm. years after Brown V's, V's uh, Board of Education. And Paul mm-hmm. was speaking against Br- Brown V's Board of Education. And he's saying, if that happens again, and he's, he's saying, if that happens against Mississippi state rights, yeah. then I will go out into the street and shoot people right. of a certain color. Right, right. right? So um, I always, when I have this conversation uh, in other venues that's what i start with mm. i start by saying that and and just saying there is no defense right. but then you yeah. go into mm-hmm. uh, you go into the fact that uh, this was a um this was something that i don't know 50 percent of mississippians would have been saying more um, right more, more than yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was they had to send in i was just if I'm not mistaken, uh, I was just having a conversation with some um, some folks over here. There's a theater in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota called History Theater, and they do hist- you know, historical plays with a Minnesota connection. If I'm not mistaken, it was the Minnesota National Guard that had to go down and sort of play neutral for that for that in a forced integration. Um, fascinating. And, well, uh, just to yeah. make a point too, there's a, there's a complicating factor to it or not. It's complicated enough. doesn't need more complicating, but, but it, you know, in the States it is gets, it does get, um, it does get entangled with our, our ongoing and ever persistent conversation that we're having in the United States about states' rights versus federal rights, right? So, you know, there's not an ideal a dog whistle when people who are students of history discuss it. By the way, they right. they will accuse you of saying if you even say that phrase, it's like it's a dog. It's not a dog whistle. We're genuinely having the conversation. Yeah, Go on, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, and so I just need to like there's there we have this thing here where like I mean sometimes 
uh, some the states will make something you know legal or illegal, whatever, and you're fully on board with it. But you're Roe v. Roe v. Wade is the the most recent obvious example, yeah, and this well, matters. It's not a lark. Right. I mean, and the whole real world, mm-hmm. right? And the whole marijuana legalization thing that's happened in the United States is is sort of part of this issue too. I mean, it's practically legal everywhere now, except federally. Right? <laughs> you can go into a you can walk into a store and commit a federal crime uh, and just walk out. <laughs> no one says a word to you. So anyway, it, it it's part of the, the racial part of this is part of a more complicated. It's part of the propositional nature of the United Gnarly. States, right? It, it makes it Gnarly. very complicated and difficult to figure your way through it. Um, when, when the system, I mean, when you have a system like all political systems, I, I don't know. I, I, I study, of course, I'm an Americanist. I, I study America probably more than I do my own country in terms of politics. But um, when you have a system that is so bent out of shape, mm-hmm. um, these things are aberrations of that. And I think that's like that's that's where I that's where I come into the discussion. I come into the discussion. Right. Let's talk about this man who existed, who was born, by the way, in 1897. So he, he his 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 views will be ex- extremely uh, exotic to us to us now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is not a person who's come up with his own ideas. He's, he's, his ideas are a symptom of living in an extremely uh, strange world, which is, the, which is not only America, but the American South in that time and that place. So, right. uh, you know, you've got, to, you've got to really look at it in, as, as being a, a very nuanced, very difficult discussion uh, that doesn't have easy solutions. Right. Yeah, and he wasn't and, and you speak of where he's from, the specifics of it. I mean, he wasn't also wasn't brought up in uh he didn't go to the Ivy Leagues, right? So even in his time he was in he was in something of a uh uh educational at least, something of an educational backwater, right? So you know, he's he's wait, Fred, did he go to a state school? Uh, <laughs> that's well, a running he joke. Gra- he didn't graduate, so oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. they didn't give. Well, he should have. He should have uh, started a tech company, right? He should have. That's what he should have. Uh, right? Uh, can you yeah. imagine Faulkner working, running a tech company? Well, this brings <laughs> us. I do want to talk about. Um, you shared your your paper on Intruder in the Dust, uh, the Dust, which is forthcoming in the Faulkner Journal. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was. I thought it was very interesting. I mean. Intruder in the Dust was uh, p- maybe paradoxically, but it was actually the first Faulkner that I ever read. I, I don't even know why. I think it's just, you know, through through uh, the old verities of wandering around used bookstores, I came across Intruder in the Dust years and years and years ago. And Wait, you're digging it. through your uh, couch for spare change. Yeah. You know, I got a buck fifty. <laughs> I can get I can get this I can yeah. get this old beat up copy of Intruder in the Dust, which I have right here. Um nice. What can you tell us there? And there was a bunch of interesting things in there that we could pull out. But but what is what is the perspective you've got going into Intruder in the Dust? What is Intruder in the Dust to you? Well, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a good segue from the last uh, uh, portion of the discussion, because uh, really what I'm making the point is that um, Intruder in the Intruder in the Dust is perhaps the epitome of of Faulkner's attempt to uh to foster this this uh, this ethics that he's been aiming at all the way along the way i mean we began the discussion by talking about uh faulkner looking at the world from different perspectives and attempting to look from marginalized uh, perspectives um and i think that's what he, he's doing in intruder you know he's he, the, the attempt is 
to think, okay, so if I have these universalist, humanist values, is it possible in this time and place to confer them onto uh, an African-American? So can I see, for instance, um, Lucas uh, Beecham as, as, a, as a full human being? Mm-hmm. And, and we're coming out of, you know, the culture of, of, of lynch culture. Um, so, you know, we're in a situation where it's patently obvious through things like, uh, I mean, I mentioned in that article, the, this abhorrent uh, act of taking pictures of a, of a lynched man and distributing them. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like souvenirs. Like souvenirs. Yeah, it's disturbing. And, and the idea, the thing that just makes your blood run cold is that the U.S. post office would have these under the counter, or you know, and you you could go and you could uh, you could procure them from the post office. Right. And right. um, so, so when you're when you're writing the story out of that, uh, it really is a question: can can we see Lucas as human? Because uh, you know you could not do these atrocious things to someone uh, if you if you saw them as being a human being. Right. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and and that's why in that article I go into the you know it's it's a it's a it's a, a sad and well sung song of um, the uh, how the these how people must be dehumanized before they can be uh, brutalized. Right. Um, right. And I bring in the I bring in discussion of the Holocaust there as well because it's a uh, you know the critic uh, English critic Paul Gilroy speaks about how that the the things like lynch culture are very close to what the Nazis uh, did to those they exterminated during the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, they first dehumanize, uh, and then they are, they're able not only to brutalize uh, others, but they're able to build a group belonging based upon that brutalization. Right. It actually brings your group closer to even closer together somehow, right? So this is, this is pr- probably one of the most insidious <laughs> yeah, that you can imagine, and is and out of that, you know, I think Faulkner's saying, is there a another way? So this is what I'm saying. He is, he has got an ethics. He's mm-hmm. saying, is there a better way uh, of, of us proceeding here as as human beings together? Yeah, uh, there's something about like the the, and you're talking about it, and, and I think Faulkner's doing it about restoring or maintaining having a theory of mind about other people right i mean we know that we know that when you know in this the this development of a, of a person a, a baby's born at some point they hit theory of mind and they realize like oh other people also have conscious experiences and then some that somehow we did something where in the lynch in the lynch culture case in the holocaust case where we managed to get ourselves into a place where not only do we think these people should be these are people who should be treated differently that's sort of one layer as abhorrent as that is but it's beyond that it's like they're not actually even people they don't have minds they don't well and it's extremely tempting to put this as out you know something out there but you can mm-hmm. see it uh, this behavior is exhibited in something as banal as sports fandom yeah, we're <laughs> it's not yeah. that it's valences, and if you know, mm-hmm. and the sports is an outlet that obviously, to a, to a degree, doesn't injure anybody. Although you could make make an argument, we watch UFC, we watch yeah. uh, the NFL, yeah. etc. Yeah. So there's where we. It's very very easy to say this is something. Of course, it could never be me. Right. I would never be the one to put them on the train. I would never be at a lynching. My God, well, right. human nature is uh, squirrely. 
statistics would uh, kind of uh, uh, belie you because most people do. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, most people do. Isn't that, isn't go, that go truly horrifying? It <laughs> it's, it's horrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and then, it, you know, if, you, if you're honest about it, you can at least use it as something to to uh, uh, examine your own kind of thought processes too, right? So it's like, well, if those people could do it, then I could do it. What am I, what am I signing up for that I'm sort of not really thinking about that has attributes of this? Like, you know, how am I treating my neighbor even, you know, that even at that level? So I think it's and all I, valid. I mean, it's, I think it's uh, why it's it's so important to study the humanities. It's so important to study literature mm-hmm. because, um, I mean, that's what it does for me. I, I mean, again, I I don't know how I would act in, in, in certain social situations, but I think I have a fair idea how I would I would uh, avoid acting in the worst possible way. Right. Because you know, because you when you because I do believe that these things um, are pointers to us, you know, uh, like um, like for instance, in Intruder in the Dust, the thing that allows um, and I, I I like the term theory of mind. We can use that, you know, he, mm-hmm. the, the the way in which he's able to um, understand that Lucas is a person, that Lucas has an interiority just like his own, mm-hmm. is that he notices that he can grieve. Mm-hmm. He looks and he says, "Wait a minute! This person is the Lucas. His wife has just died in the story, and and Lucas has been avoiding Chick yeah. in the story, and Chick sees Lucas as so little. You know, he's he's not he's not a human being to such a degree that avoiding him, he thinks that's something about him. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually, Lucas is just silently grieving his wife, right?" And, right. The fact he has that a Ch- complicated interior world that he's living in. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's going through his own stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and course, because Chick sees that, he's able to say, wait a minute, this is a human being, this is a man. Mm-hmm. And, and with that, something snaps, and Chick becomes a different character from that point on. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's lots there's there's uh, lots of uh, scholars that have looked at this uh, the same way I have and and saying that he's he's divesting himself of his own whiteness, mm. right? Now mm. I see that as a I see that as a very particular thing that's going on there. Uh, we're all given um, identities and we're all given given identity belongings, mm-hmm. um, and and those can lead to this sort of um, brutalization of the other whoever the other is. Right. It, doesn't, it doesn't really matter who the other is. It's there is someone else who is not us, and 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 they are uh, to be the recipient of this brutality. Now, if you slacken your um, your uh, grip on your mm-hmm. own position, uh, your own positionality, we might call it, then mm-hmm. it's harder for you to see the other as another, right. and it's harder for you to do that sort of thing. Um, and it's also, I mean, there's another great, there's another moment in the, the, the paper I've, I've written on Intruder that's, um, that speaks from the internal. I mean, I, you, you will have encountered this bit at the, near the beginning. I speak about Mr. Lily, the, yes. the, old, the old white character who, uh, he, he's perfectly willing at any drop of a hat to engage in a lynching. In fact, he's just, he's just waiting around for right. it. Yes. Yeah. And there's a moment in mm. an intruder. I love this moment. I think about this often um, where it says, 
uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it says it's it's shocking how little vocabulary human beings need, mm. and that shocks me because what what Faulkner is saying there is uh, the ideas in our heads and the ones we express are so few, uh, and you see that in politics, don't you? Mm-hmm. If you watch the new the the news cycle, you will see the same words and phrases over and over and over again. And what you'll see is you ha- you'll see them on on two sides. Right. You'll have, you'll have one side saying one thing, one side saying the other, and they repeat. Yeah. yeah. Um, and 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 that to me is 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 a mechanism for for harming others. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah. 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 Just, oh, for supposed. sure. And it, and it's partly the simplicity of the language, but also just pure brainwashing. Because if they can repeat the same stuff over and over, and it's a combination of those two things mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. yeah it, gets, and it gets incidentally used by people, and then it gets kind of used against you too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. One hundred percent. Boy, what a uh, what a fascinating conversation. I'm really enjoying this. Uh, again, it goes yeah. back to that tweet that was happening. Or I don't know if you saw this, Bernard. There was a tweet that said uh, men invented golf so they could go walking to they could take a walk together and they invented <laughs> podcasts so they could have conversations right <laughs> i actually saw a, i saw a similar tweet the other day i don't know who put it out but it was excellent he said i'm going to invent a podcast but we're not going to record it friendship yes and we consider everybody who comes on the pod as a, as a friend bernard where can people find you on um on the bird website on twitter yeah, I mean, it's just uh, Bern- Bernard T. Joy. Yeah, yeah. At yeah. Bernard T. Joy. And um, a couple of other things, and we're kind of, we're sort of approaching our hour here, but there are a couple other things I want to talk about. You um, you refer to a concept in your Intruder in the Dust um, article that I wasn't familiar with, and sort of embarrassingly so, but I, I, would, I hope you could maybe just flesh it out for our audience. It's the notion of the Black Atlantic um, as discussed in the the book by it's Patrick Gilroy, right? I say it's uh, Paul Paul Gilroy. Gilroy. Yeah. What is that? What is that concept? Yeah, I mean, it's a for me, it's a it's a fascinating con concept, and it's a a concept I'm I'm recurringly using in my work. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, I mean, Paul Gilroy um, speaks about um, the 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 tradition. Of the Black Atlantic, so it, so, so a, a, a sort of seminal figure for this would be uh, Du Bois, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and all those who sort of come after him and and thought. And the basic uh, concept is that he's he's seeing the gr- the connections that we have across the Atlantic. So mm-hmm. Paul Gilroy is a is an Englishman, um, and he he begins. I, b- I believe he begins the book that the Black Atlantic, which is is uh, this concept is uh, is fleshed out in that book? He begins it just by discussing his uh, experiences of being a, a young Englishman uh, with black skin and uh, living living in England, and 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 he sort of uh, he problematizes the the division between the American experience and the English experience, and he says a lot of the music I was listening to growing up was American music. Sure. And then he does things like he'll say, um, there's a wonderful, uh, there's a wonderful sequence uh, in one of his essays, I think, where he's talking about the black Atlantic and he talks about, uh, uh, he talks about, um, uh, Nelson Mandela. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I I was was trying to get 
Nelson Mandela, he talks about, and he says that um, Nelson Mandela, when he was on Robbins Island uh, in prison, was was listening to Marvin Gaye, I believe. Right, right. Um, and so the connection between Africa, England, America, all through the black diaspora mm-hmm. uh, is what the Black Atlantic is. Right. Uh, but it allows us, as a sort of methodological tool, it allows us to actually think to ourselves, are we all connected? Right. right. Do we have a connection that un- sort of undergirds uh, what we might see as, as differences? Yeah. Um, and there's a, and another one of his essays, he writes, he, 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 speaks, he, he speaks about the uh, Phoenicians. And he says, have we completely forgot that the Phoenicians brought a lot of, you know, we, we tend to think the Greeks, the Romans. What about the Phoenicians, he says? Right, <laughs> you know? right. So there's, basically there's a, a broader array of connections uh, in any given place, America, Africa, England. Yeah. But also there's connections between them. Sure. Yeah, this reminds us, we did an episode on the, the American bluesman uh, Junior Kimbrough back in the early days of this podcast, and he had a certain sort of rhythm that was uh, uh, typified what came to be known as hill country blues. And he grew up in a very sort of isolated community, um, not far from Faulkner, to be honest. And uh, interestingly, later in his life, some West African musicians kind of came to his area and noted that some of the songs he was playing were almost note for note traditional West African songs. Now, Kimbrough didn't really even know where he'd learned these, you know, <laughs> he, just kind of play, he just kind of played them. But but Kimbrough was super influential on sort of reverse influential on on um, European rock musicians right mm-hmm. who then yeah. we all back in america started li- were listened to as well so there was this very strange circuitous route almost like you can imagine i visualize it as like this rhythm that sort of just is omnipresent and resurfacing and then going back underground and coming back up right i, I am gonna tag this so hard because uh when uh, y'all were talking about absalom absalom i had two points that i wasn't quite able to jam in one sure. was that that novel uh, with the sound of the fury uh won him the nobel in 1949 so despite all the problems with it that was the one the second thing and read from uh from wikipedia so we're we're uh, in west africa we're in south africa we're in england we're in mississippi and we're also in canada the yeah. final lyric of distant early warning a single uh single released by the canadian rock band rush is the word Absalom repeated three times. Drummer Neil Pert, rest in peace, the band's lyricist said he loved the sound of the title of Faulkner's novel and was inspired to look up the biblical story of Absalom after reading the novel, quoting, since one of the main themes of the song was compassion, it occurred to me that the biblical story uh, story was applicable. So not only do we have all of these, we've got Rush. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the, great, the great benefit of studying someone for so long is that you know you know things that you don't know. So that so Rush, I'd heard that they, but I never had time to look into it or anything like that. So yeah. thanks for that. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, so that's I, you know, the more time you pay, I, I feel like the more time you pay attention to any one topic like Faulkner, you do start to realize that it's tendrils that go out into every everything else. There's no, there's no isolating any, there's no isolating anything from anything else really, unless you're trying to be 
um, obtuse about it. Oh, I mean, yeah, 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 100%. So we at the, at the beginning when we were talking about um, the the connections of Faulkner to other places, you know, and I, I, I mentioned his his French connections, um, you know, you mentioned Japan, you know, and the, the, the connections there are so clear as well. I mean, I've done a lot of work on Kenzaburo Oi. Oh, one of my favorites. Yeah, he's a great, great writer. And he's um, he is very explicitly influenced by Faulkner. Uh, he writes about it. Uh, very eloquently how he developed his own uh, sort of work out of reading Faulkner um, and uh, th- and there are so many excellent connections when we look at um, when we look at Faulkner and Oe as um, as peripheral characters so you know um, Faulkner is from this uh, you know smaller um, urban center and and uh, you know kind of rural and uh, and away certainly away from the the north, which would be the the real center powerhouse, and even quite peripheral where he is, and and then Oe is living on an island, um, uh, so he's he's um he he says I I had the same sense of peripherality mm. that I, I was reading in Faulkner, so that sort of and and it, and again it it comes back to that as we were saying why do you try to look for perspectives that are marginal. Well, possibly because you're marginal yourself, right? And you realize that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, I think that's that is interesting. We are all sort of there. There is, and not to get there's levels to it, obviously. But everybody has some aspect. You talked about these sort of getting into sort of identity groups or whatever. Everybody can. You could decide to focus on the part of your identity that is the most marginalized, right? And everybody's got one part that is a podcaster. Podcaster. <laughs> yeah, you know, in the states Kevin and I both live in what's called flyover country, right? So, you know, it's so it's uh, we're Oh my mar- god, I mean, I'm from sense... the middle of nowhere originally. Right. I mean, yeah, and yeah, so, so I can definitely a... relate to that. There's the southern problem, there's the western problem, there's being a western writer. It's mm-hmm. there's a lot of it, it gets yeah. tricky. It's complicated. Yeah. This is this is I didn't know about I didn't know about always uh uh you know Faulkner connection, but that that is makes this makes a fascinating that's two parts of a very fascinating triangle to me. Um the third one being Borges, who apparently also loved Faulkner. So you put oh. these three together, and in some senses, on a first glance, there couldn't be three more different writers. Um, but as soon as you say that they, they, all these connections do start to kind of come together. It does make, it does make sense. I know we're coming up. I beg your pardon. I know we're coming up to the hour, but, um, Bernard, we have not spoken at all about Faulkner's drinking. Uh, (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That that can't stand, can it? (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, it's, uh, obviously he liked the whiskey. Um, you know, I was just, I was just thinking the other day, I mean, uh, you know, Faulkner's alcoholism was something that he struggled with his whole life. Um, he, uh, he, one thing to think about when he was when he was at the Russell Howe interview that we were just talking about, he was drunk. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so he was drunk in a lot of um, he was drunk in a lot of public engagements, like interviews. He was drunk at lots of parties. He went when he ever went to a literary party, he was usually. He was usually, um, you know, who, who can blame him, right? Yeah, exactly. yeah I know, right? Well, <laughs> it, well, it links, you know, it links in again to another part of sort of Faulkner's temperament because he didn't like literary types, mm-hmm. he, really. He didn't like literary conversations and things of that nature. Whenever he was asked, uh, 
you know, what are you reading? He, I don't read really read any of my contemporaries. He said as he was when he was older. Mm-hmm. I mean, he obviously read his earlier when he was the Hemingway, Cather and Hemingway, but, and all those. Yeah, things. his his younger contemporaries he didn't read uh, mm-hmm. at his own admission. And when he was asked about, you know, what have you what have you read? He was always very vague. He didn't really want to talk about it. He would rather. There's a great story about. Um, I can't remember who this is. He was doing an interview. And the inter- interviewer was talking to him about literary matters and all all the rest of it, and and he's totally bored with the whole thing. He's giving one word answers and things like this, and then the interviewer says, "Oh, I just flew in in a biplane yeah. to see," and he perks up <laughs> because they wanted to talk about the biplane. Right. <laughs> so he, he's sort of uh, he's got that sort of thing. That, not a fan of the literary. But I was yeah. thinking, well, the, the, the other thing is that, the, you know, we can think of Faulkner's drinking as having killed him as well. Yeah. So that's the event because, you know, when he, he dies from falling off a horse, but he probably would have recovered better if he hadn't uh, spent uh, weeks destroying his body through alcohol. And he, I don't know, I've not looked in it close enough, but he might not have fallen. Yeah. Mm. He did have a thing. We kind of we kind of found this in the biography of like getting drunk and the way he rode a horse, he would jumping stuff, chart like he did he wasn't he was reckless. He was pretty reckless on a horse, which you know, that's that's fine. But you combine that with getting older and not necessarily having taken care of his body to begin with, drinking, you know, of the of the the all of the literary alcoholics. I think by volume, Faulkner is in the running. I, I, it really seems that way. So, so yeah, yeah, geez. And it's, you know, it's what can you say about it other than it does seem to be an occupational hazard of the craft? Mm-hmm. Um, and for him, I mean, as I think it was actually part of his craft. Not, not that I would suggest anyone go into drinking if they want to be a better writer, but uh, I, personally, I can't touch a drop if I'm writing. Mm. But he would, he would uh, have, um, uh, he would have it as part of his practice. It was u- usually after he'd finished a big work, he would drink till he was comatose, right? Um, right. And he would drink for he would drink for weeks yeah. at a time, um, and then that he he sort of speaks in certain places about that giving him sort of. In a sense, I'm paraphrasing, but a, a sort of fuel mm-hmm. uh, to to start the next big work of the mind later on. Yeah, it's a part of the gestation process, but it's also probably a a, a, a future incentive, kind of drawing him towards it. Right, once I get this mm-hmm. done, I can go on. The, I I, I yeah, freeing myself to go on this bender. I've earned it. All that, and then in that in that drunken you know mess. Uh, there is some element of of creative creative gestation, and then you know people can argue whether oh maybe it would have been better if he hadn't. <sighs> who can who can say you don't have a you can't a b test it. So um, yeah, it's it just, puts it's you into a there. state of um, infancy too. If you're drinking that heavily, you're drinking mm-hmm. to a point where you're that far gone. The people around you cannot rely on you, and in fact need to take care of you right. uh, and and look after you. So fascinating. This has been a great conversation. We're not done, but we, we're going to break and come back. Brad, do you want to read us out? 
Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, folks, um, we're going to come back. Uh, in a, there's going to be an After Dark episode. So uh, if you're not a subscriber and you'd like to subscribe, patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Um, we're getting more and more people joining us there all the time. Um, a these- mere three U.S. dollars gets yeah. you in the door and then yeah. we have you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, that's there's we got tons of free content, but the, the After Darks mm-hmm. are, are always something kind of special. Um, so you know jeff definitely join us there um we also kevin we have stickers now apparently so there's always like new merch and stuff coming stickers well i think we need to make a post on the website which is at artofdarkpod.com and link to the stickers so brad during the break send me the link and i'll make that post stickers are a great idea who did that i don't know you Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, it was me. Okay, we, you know you got to <laughs> put our, those ideas our, in front of me in the yeah. production meetings, Brad. This it is was a, our it was our staff mm. here at our, our, our <laughs> yeah, right the, uh, the staff offices. Uh, <laughs> the intern and and our intern does not get healthcare. No, no, no. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Bernard, right. one thing. Uh, get is I want to talk a couple of things. I, I you didn't seem in your social media presence as far as I could tell. You don't make a big splash, but you do have you do have creative work out there as well. You've got a couple of poetry collections and, and a. a collection of pros can, what can you tell us about that yeah well I, I don't make a big splash about it because it seems like a past life now okay. I, I sort of uh, I began my life publishing poetry I published lots mm-hmm. um, and then I sort of transitioned into horror writing uh, mm. which is totally sort of a, it was a totally different mindset that was required for that Sure. Um, but I uh, and I was, you know, I, I published quite a lot of uh, of, of horror fiction as well. Cool. Uh, and then when I started my and I was doing that right up until I started my PhD. But I feel that you simply can't have both things in your head at the same time. I, I can't find any way of compartmentalizing my mind to do both. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's always something that I, I want to sort of go back to now that I'm a bit. Uh, you know, I'm not doing a PhD now, but there's yeah. so much more to do with the. Oh, man. You make it sound like you you might do another PhD, is what that sounded like. I'm not doing a. No, no, no you're no, done. No, no, thank you. One's enough. <laughs> and congratulations on that. Yeah, that's a, that's a, an enormous accomplishment. Deal. Absolutely. All right. So, artofdarkpod.com, um, and you're at Bernard T. Joy on on Twitter, I and. We're going to be back in, in a few minutes for the after dark yeah. for the Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash art of dark pod. We're going to talk. We're going to talk through this question. Was Faulkner a cubist? Okay. Yeah. See you. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank you so Enjoy much. For a bit. Yeah. Thanks. Bernard. Okay.